1: Well, hello again. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, our podcast that investigates leadership as a responsibility and not a position at all levels and types. And today's guest, who is a woman in technology, worked for Cisco, a worldwide router and switch and technology company. They've expanded beyond that. For 15 years, she worked for Cisco. And as a woman in a man's world, I will say, I'll go out and say that, and uh, people understand that in technology, it can be a tough gig. But our guest today, Catherine Robinson, she excelled at building business at Cisco outside of their core markets and learned an awful lot for that to set her up for what she does today, which is to help entrepreneurs and other businesses grow their business. Senior executives grow their business. Well, welcome to Leading from the Front, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Gary? I'm terrific. Talk a little bit about, I'm I'm sure I absolutely destroyed that intro for the real impact that you had at Cisco, and then helping entrepreneurs grow their business. Talk a little bit about what you do and how working at Cisco helped you get there.
2: So I'll tell you a little bit. I'm going to go back before Cisco, and one of my sort of... uh, Aha moments, I think in my career in my life was I realized early on that I wasn't interested in sort of that traditional career path that said you start in a role. I happened to start out in finance and you stay in that that function and you work your way, you know, up the ladder, so to speak. Um, one of the first leadership opportunities I got was I had a controller, I was a finance manager, ask me to take on the the payroll department. Because we were going through a major systems integration exercise, really up-leveling that that department and how we did business. And, you know, I'm in my late 20s. I'm asked to manage 30 to 40 people. And for the most part, it was very disruptive to them. Uh, In many cases, they recognized early on that what we were implementing was going to eliminate a lot of their jobs. So. What I realized is what I loved about the role is I kind of got the bug. First of all, I got the bug that said, you know, technology, not for technology's sake, but technology to improve the business was interesting to me. And I realized that being a catalyst, being a change catalyst was something that I I enjoyed. I liked being the connector between the IT organization and this finance organization through this change. And I found that, you know, I don't speak a lot of different languages, Gary, but I found that I was translating. I was synthesizing information back and forth. I knew enough about the technology to talk to the technology guys and let them know, you know, what the business needed. And then vice versa, I would take that back into my team and make them feel less stressed and more comfortable about why the technology was going to impact the business. So, it's a crazy job, and you know, I never thought I would do that—be a payroll manager. But it was—it was a time when I learned what it was I loved. And so, when I entered Cisco, um, really every role I took was had that element of disruption. Like I shared with you, I was rarely working on routing and switching products, which were the core of our business. I was working on either that next acquisition, that next technology working a lot in the software space where Cisco was predominantly back then a hardware company. But the thing that I really applied over and over again was this concept of connecting and synthesizing throughout the process.
1: So this is interesting because as you talk about this in the role that you're in as a translator, you know, trying to help people understand and communicate with each other because it's two different languages, maybe 10 different languages, <laughs> <But> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all these different languages and perspectives and seeing things. And we all know that, uh, first of all, history of implementations like this, um, uh, the statistics show 85% of all IT projects fail. Uh, they either fail by going over budget, not meeting schedule or getting completely canceled. And, and those statistics haven't changed in 40 or 50 years. So you're right in the middle of this, trying to make a a, a technology project successful while you're balancing the process, right? In a role that I want to, I want to point this out because you're in a role that has no positional power. You know, you have no positional power over the whole process. You only have positional power over those 20 or 30 people that might be reporting to you. And even that is, is uh, it's a slippery slope. If you try to micromanage these smart people. Absolutely. So I talk about this all the time. Where When you're using your positional power, you're actually limiting your power and you're starting to diminish your leadership capability if you overuse it. So what did you find in these roles? How, what techniques, what approaches did you use to help with this translation, with trying to motivate people, with trying to work with them to be successful with no positional power? So how would you go about doing
2: that? You know, in some cases, as you point out, Gary, it wasn't even a lack of having the positional power to make the overall, you know, outcome successful. It was also an outcome that was going to create pain (laughs) for a lot of people along the way, right? So, you know, it was uh, it it had sort of a double whammy in terms of challenges. I'll I'll give you another example. I, um, once again, pre Cisco, I was recruited to roll to run the operations team the global network operations team and engineering team at Turner Broadcasting and the CIO hired me and he was taking a chance on me because I remember telling him I'm not an engineer I've never run an operations team and he said I need a leader I need someone who's going to help Ooh. us lead through these changes and you know at this point in my career I was beginning to say okay I get that I know I, here's I know what I'm going to go to. And so in this particular case, we were taking, again, we were taking the IT network, which was at that time, and I'm going to age myself a little, but it was best effort email, to be honest. Um, And we were going to change the business of Turner Broadcasting. So Turner is all about content, whether it's CNN, Hanna-Barbera, you know, Turner Classic Movies, we were all about content. We were going to change that business from being analog-based to being a digitally delivered um, set of solutions, right? And I went back to, I had a lot of doubters. So we had the analog engineers, right, who, you know, literally they had the attitude, not over my dead body are we going to deliver the news over this network. You know, literally that was the way they approached it, very antagonistic. So to your question, I went back to those core things that had worked for me in the past and I didn't have positional power over them at all. In fact, I was creating pain, but I really focused early on on connecting, you know, reaching out. And, you know, some of us, particularly those of us who are more extroverted, Gary, the first thing we want to do is share and talk and, you know, get people excited about things. But what I did was make myself listen without you know, getting upset, listen to all the reasons why they were concerned about my team being able to support their environment. Listen to all the reasons why they were so uh, worried for the business to make this shift. And through that process, I developed relationships, I developed trust. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people overlook. I think listening is one of the strongest ways truly listening, like authentically listening, is one of the strongest ways to begin to sort of start that process of developing trust with someone else. And so through that process, I connected with them, I listened, and then I went back to that translator synthesizer. So I began to help them understand why some of the painful process steps we were going to have to take in transition were necessary And then I went back to that team who I did have positional power over, and one of the things I found, and I still to this day actually do coaching in this area, it's a lot of uh, fun for me to work with someone who's technically very bright and help them understand the business implications of what they're doing. Help them understand how they can be leaders through their communications through how they interact with others, how they respond in different contexts, as opposed to always just being that smartest person in the room. So I went back to that translating and synthesizer role that, you know, I've sort of become dependent on.
1: So there's a lot to unpack there and, and a lot of really great stuff as you talk about it. And what I wrote down as you were talking is you became the translator to transition by understanding their emotional resistance because you use the word worry you know people are worried when when something's new they're worried so whether it's going from analog to digital or going from working in the office to working outside the office leaders struggle with this today regardless of what the transition is but they struggle in in what we're facing right now with the world changing And having to do more and more virtually and not knowing exactly how to address that. And what I heard you say is to first, you know, this goes back to Stephen Covey's uh, habit five. Seek first to understand before being understood is I'm not going to put my my perspective on you. I want to hear your perspective. What worries you? What are your challenges? And then let's talk about from a business standpoint where we're trying to go. So you create a vision. You did. You 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 all of these things in in that few minutes where you you take this project and you've got goals, but you want to first understand where they're coming from. And it sounds like that you've done that through your whole career when you went to Cisco, and of course now as a consultant, what do you do? I Same see. thing. Yeah, right? you, know, you listen.
2: You you do, and I think it's it's a um, you know for me that the transition from. Being in some of those positional leadership roles and actually having, you know, budget domains, things like that to being a consultant was a, was a, I faced some challenges in that as well, because today I do work with smaller companies generally by choice. I'm working with those companies who are the innovators and the disruptors, right? And they have, you know, it took me some time to appreciate and gain some level of empathy for the very different types of issues they have in that sort of startup incubation mode from the types of issues you had when you had a much broader sort of functional support net. And, you know, in in doing that, I was doing it concurrently while learning those challenges running my own business, right? Mm -hmm. It brought to the surface, Gary, the importance of prioritization and sort of elegant simplicity, In terms of what has to get done. Um, Mm. So, you know, I think as leaders, sometimes we are very aware of of the million things that we want to get accomplished, all the things we want to get done. But when you're working with an early stage startup, you have one to three goals and they are very, the, the more concise and the tighter they are and the clearer every set of activities around the company support that goal it's very important um, and it's a it's a challenge sometimes for for people who start these companies sometimes they are uh, technically brilliant but they've never led people and they've never started a company and so helping them get sort of focused on those priorities the priority might be sales and their inclination is often to hire, in their own image hire more technical people right so helping mm-hmm. them understand you know how to get to that prioritization of if this is our main initiative you know how am i going to hire the right team the right diverse team that's going to bring the right skills to bear to achieve that initiative and sometimes i'm going to need people on that team who are smarter than me and who don't think like i do in fact if they think about problems differently, they're going to make our solutions better.
1: Sure. So, uh, again, a lot there. Um, and what I what I heard when the work that you do is really focused priority, you know, elegant simplicity, it's focused priority and the work that you do now. But I want to go back a little bit to your long career at Cisco. And the reason I want to go back to that is because um, I think a lot of our listeners can really Uh, understand some of the challenges you might have had within a large corporation, trying to get things done, managing and leading people. And uh, I'm curious to hear, based on some of these philosophies of focused priority and, you know, elegant simplicity and all the things you do today, how did that serve you in a big company? How did listening and, you know, you got a story that you can tell us where you you, you turned a, a corporate resistance effort. You know, you get these, these uh, uh, cohorts of people that just don't want to move. Right. And you your job as a leader and a manager is to get them to move and maybe some of your own people. And they're thinking, oh, you know what, uh, Catherine, uh, you'll be gone in two years. I'll, I'll just hang in there and wait for you to leave. And in some corporations, that's people's attitude. How did you. How did you handle some of that within the structure of a big company?
2: You know, I think for me, I I am very fortunate in that I always made sure I had good mentors and coaches Mm. within the environment that I was willing to uh, listen to, even when they gave me news I didn't want to hear.
1: Can you tell me about a situation that you were in when you really had one of these coaches or mentors that uh, gave you some hard news and what that was like.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we all remember those situations, right? Mm -hmm. So I was asked to take on the professional services team for uh, what we called collaboration software at Cisco. And this was in the earlier days of voiceover IP. And I inherited a team of brilliant engineers, many of whom have, like contributed to, you know, the software behind prioritizing and queuing voice and video and all kinds of stuff. Right. And the, the business wanted to turn this into a profitable business, but also we had this issue with our clients. Um, they were buying and early adopters of the technology, but they weren't embracing it, which may be hard for people to believe today, since everybody in the world is on Zoom today. But there was a time when people were resistant to embracing, you know, voice and video over an internet technology to run their business. And I immediately, I was very passionate about the opportunity. And what I found is that the team was consulting with clients and always sort of going in and like, teaching and directing the client on how to do the technology. And so we had to step back and I started pushing really hard about consultative skills, listing skills, you know understanding the pain of the customer, not making them feel stupid, you know all these things, right And I realized this was what was this was what we were missing. We were missing this absorption you know we were missing making the customers successful. Unfortunately, I have a tendency to get very passionate about things I believe in when I figure out that they're this is it, you know, this is the answer. And I think in that particular role there was a lot of pressure, right? I had a P&L goal, I had lots of things going on, we had sales teams who wanted to give all the services away for free. We had, you know, so I was building, I was using my connecting skills, working with sales, working with engineering, but the more passionate I got and the more frustrated I got with our ability to change, the way we were going to market, I actually, in hindsight, realized Gary that I became a little bit antagonistic with those around me who like weren't ready to move, move fast, right? Mm-hmm. And I had a boss, a very—he um, was a great boss for me because we were very different in our. I'm very extroverted; I was very, you know, dynamic. He was very calm. Um, very wise man. And he sat me down and he said, Catherine, your strategy is correct. I'm incredibly supportive of your strategy, but you are going to destroy your personal credibility and you're not going to be successful if you don't change your awareness about how others feel about this change. And even though I shared with you Gary that I'd always been sort of involved in these disruptor environments and I thought I was getting really good at it. In Cisco, everybody everybody's very very smart. I mean, I was very fortunate to work with some incredibly brilliant people. And in some ways, I just didn't have the patience, you know, for them. There was just no excuse as to why they couldn't come along and get with the program, <laughs> you know, to make and it. And why do
1: you think that you had that that fierce passion and negative emotion for others? What's I, at the core of that?
2: Well, I think, you know, under stress, as leaders and as people in any relationship, sometimes I've learned that our biggest strengths of character, you know, you whatever they are, under stress can become over or underutilized. Yeah. So in this example, my passion overutilized became antagonistic. And I will yeah. admit, I'm ashamed of this in some ways, but when I got that feedback, I flipped to underutilization of that character strength and became almost passive. Mm. Like, you know, I was, when I was processing that feedback at first, I found myself almost shutting down and not contributing in meetings, not, you know, because I was trying, you know, I was so upset by sort of being called out. But then as I began to work through it, I realized there was, there was context that I needed to pay attention to when I was working with different teams. And I needed to go back to those core principles that I had established for myself. I need to listen better. I need to, you know, gain more empathy about why people aren't willing to go quickly when this seems so obvious to me <laughs> that we could make a lot of money and make customers successful. What's the problem? Um, and so it was
0: a-
1: And that's that's the, that phrase right there though, is I want to lock in on that because I can remember a, a famous consultant saying, when we lock in, we lock out. When you think you're, you've got the answer and then you get resistance for that answer, we stop listening and we start like increasing our volume I'll just say it that way, right? Yes. We increase our passion. We try to inspire people to the point where we're screaming off the top of the mountain. Why don't you see this? Why don't you see this? And everybody's looking up at you going, huh, look at that idiot. You know? <laughs> they're, yeah. they're up there screaming. We can't even hear him in the wind, right? We can't even hear because we're not listening to them. Just what you say, we're not listening. And what I, what I heard you say, and we talk about this in leadership all the time is you became focused on the outcome not the process and you ignored the process of building those relationships of listening, of understanding, and, and then being able to bring the collect all the principles that you t- just talked about. Don't want to be the smartest person in the room. We want to listen to these people. We have differing perspectives and those different perspectives make us better. They all went out the window. As soon as you said, I've got the answer.
2: It's, it's so true. And I think Gary, one other thing I'll add is, you know, I, I think I defended myself because of my intentions. So my intentions were not ego-driven. They weren't about me. They were about the business, the success of the project. And because I had good intentions, I gave myself a pass on things that I didn't necessarily, you know, that I knew better. <laughs> I knew better not to do. And I think that's where a lot of times in working with startup founders, I find this their intentions are good or right, you know, in terms of the business, but helping them sort of step back from that a little bit and recognize the damage they may be doing to the culture, for example, if they are, you know, pushing too hard or calling people out, you know, one of the things that happens, I see a lot is particularly with technical leaders, a lot of times they hire the best and the brightest around them, but they will call people out publicly a lot, you know, in, in a way that's not necessarily constructive. I'm all about, you know, there's a, there's a level of conflict that I think is actually very healthy in organizations. I'm not afraid of conflict at all, but I think helping people realize that they've got to step outside of that passion a minute and make sure They're bringing everyone along with them, meeting people where they are, as opposed to screaming from the mountaintop (laughs) and screaming louder and louder and louder. Right.
1: Respectful conflict And our culture in America is one of competition and conflict quite often, not necessarily respectful conflict. And in the Eastern cultures, the first thing they do in negotiations is agree on what they agree on. They agree on all the things that they see the same. And when you start a negotiation like that, you find yourself getting closer and closer to the center. And and then you only negotiate a few things rather than thinking that we're so far apart. So it's a real mindset of the process and shifting the process. And what I remember, one of my coaches that I didn't understand very well uh, early on was he said, uh, do you want to be right or you want to be effective? And that kind of summarizes it as in leadership. Is that when we lock in, we lock out and we try to be right rather than being effective in the process of leadership and, and stepping away from the outcome. Uh, that's what makes us effective. And I'm not saying I'm never saying that you don't have goals, you don't have a mission, you don't have you know some direction and key performance indicators and try to achieve that. But along the way, we need to be open in the how we go about the achievement of that outcome. And that's the key to engaging others and being a leader. And I'll say one last thing: is that we a lot of the things that you described is things that we lead, read in books on biographies and autobiography of great leaders. You know, they took a stand and they did this and they did that. Well, yeah, when Winston Churchill took a stand during World War II, it was needed. These are extreme circumstances. When we take a stand on an IT project, as if we're Winston Churchill, we got to realize the context is not the same. <laughs> And and that's the key to to this is understanding the context and understanding that the process is what's important, not just the outcome. It's just as important.
2: No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that context, as I've, you know, continued to grow and develop myself, because we always do for, you know, it never ends. I've realized that you have to look not just in terms of the context of a big IT project, but in the context of a conversation in the context of a point in time with an individual. And so I think, you know, as leaders, the more self-aware, nobody's perfect, right? We all have our imperfections. We all have things we do really well, things that we struggle with. But what I found, the more self-aware I've been able to become as I learn about myself and I reflect on, you know, mistakes, the more likely I'm able to Recognize, you know, spend less time thinking about myself, right, in a contextual situation, and be open to understanding that other person's perspective. Um, so, I think the the con- leadership in context matters. I mean, I, I listened to one of the uh, earlier podcasts that you did, and I really it really resonated with me because every situation, you know, whether you're in a group situation, whether you're in a one on one. Um, whether the project's going well, the project's not going well. It's important to take all those factors in and adapt your leadership style. So people who have the ability to be, uh, to adapt to situational context, I think are always going to be better leaders, even if they're not the most obvious leader, so to speak.
1: And I, I think sometimes not the most charismatic leader but they become the anchor of the team.
2: Right. They can be quiet, quiet leaders, right. Who are um, addressing those situations contextually.
1: Well, I I think that's a great place for us to stop because there's a lot of uh, uh, really great advice that I think our listeners can learn from today from you, uh, Catherine. And um, I, I just uh, have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, 30 minutes has gone by like it was two minutes. And we've learned an awful lot uh, about uh, leadership in context matters. I love that phrase. And that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to call this podcast, leadership in context matters. And you've had a lot of context. So uh, Catherine, thank you so much for being our guest today. And i look forward to uh, talking with you some more. Thanks, Gary. So I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability and thanks for listening to a, another podcast on Leading from the Front. Take care.
0: Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit staterius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.